the leaders in those businesses are the people to make those right decisions. And occasionally it's the decision is that they're not the right people to run it. You know, these are the type of things that I guess mature founders will will make a decision to say, look, I'm not the right person for this. I love it. I'll support it. But we need someone who can do X, Y, and Z. Otherwise, we're not going to make that quantum leap to the next next stage. All right, everybody, welcome back to Founder Vision. This is Brett Kistler, your host, and today my guest is Nathan Kelleher. He's the co-founder and director at True Altitude, a venture capital fund based in the UK. And Nathan, I also understand that you were a founder at a company called Detected at some point. Is, am I right? Yeah, correct. Um, yeah, that was that was last year. Um, we we started we kicked that business off in uh, the middle of the pandemic, which was actually. Yeah, it was a, it was a cool experience. Um, very challenging, but uh, yeah, some good stories out of it. <laughs> yeah, how did that go? Starting a company in the midst of the pandemic. Yeah, so um, our our core business with uh, True Attitude was uh, it's kind of ground to a halt once everyone got locked in their their houses doing a, a lot of mm-hmm. what we were doing. So we we kicked that business off. Uh, it, was a, it was a fun story actually because. Um, we got into doing the PPE, which was uh, a lot of uh, it was mm. a lot of dodgy, dodgy traders, a lot of dodgy businesses, and we we started that business to start looking at verification of businesses. Um, we felt that it would help people to actually know who they're dealing with, especially marketplaces. And mm-hmm. kicking that business off whilst you're locked in separate houses was very challenging. And I'm actually shocked to see how many businesses started during the past year, given the challenges everyone has. Yeah, it's interesting. There's there's two sides of it, right? There's the there's all the challenges, but then because of all the challenges, everyone else's rest of their life is disrupted. And well, what what could I do other than you know start that business that I've been thinking of? Or I, I think a, a lot of it is just when you're living through something like a pandemic and a lockdown, you're looking for some sense of agency and what what can I do to have some impact on the way things are changing in the world right now and get exactly. my hands dirty. Might as well start some kind of business. Yeah, no, totally. We, we that that was kind of our thinking. Um, you know, we we had to pivot. You know, we were pivoting. We were wanting to start a fund, which we're, we're doing now um, to build our fund a lot a lot bigger. But we couldn't do that last year, so we were looking at what to do and partnered with uh, a colleague or an associate. Um, and when we, we got that started, bootstrapped the business. And uh, since then, we've been able to sort of step back and just assist from outside. But uh, they're, they're going from strength to strength. And, uh, yeah, obviously still as founding mm-hmm. shareholders have been great. Yeah. So that's, a, that's an interestingly fast life cycle for having just started it last year and then you're already stepping away and kind of letting it, letting it grow. How do you, how do you approach that? Uh, Having having the vision for something, and then very quickly being able to step back and just trust the team that you've put in place. Yeah, we've we've been through it a bit. I think I think it's come through um, the last say five years um, since we exited a tech business. We had a um, tech business, Tomando, which we were involved in. My um, co-founder Darko and I. Um, since then, we've been helping startups getting off the ground. So we've seen all the good things and probably some of the, the bad things, but you learn from 
the good and the bad. And we've seen businesses that took a long time to take off and some really quick. And I guess we learned a lot of lessons. So we were able to work faster in fundraising. We were able to work faster in you know, cutting a lot of the edges that you would normally take as founders to find you know, these experiences. And we've applied that obviously to our main business, True Attitude. We've been able to apply it obviously to a lot of the startups we work with as well as the ones we've funded as well. So I guess mm-hmm. you, you learn from the bad and I've, I often say to people instead of focusing on you know, telling people what to do, often we get to tell them what not to do, you know, and that's sometimes more valuable mm-hmm. in the fact that you don't make those mistakes sometimes. Yeah. So, so having, having been in the role of the founder and also being a VC and sometimes at the same time, what's the, what are the, some of the most important things that you've learned that you, bring, that, that you can bring as an advisor to, to your portfolio companies? Yeah, I think, you know, certainly it, it, it gives us a different focus because we know if we're going to invest and we've got approximately 24, 25 investments that we've made over the uh, last couple of years, um, all in tech, all, you know, similar sort of businesses in the fact that, you know, you learn about uh, culture, you learn about uh, market fit and, you know, we can get into more detail on that. And mm-hmm. I guess you also learn about, uh, you know, the the... the the founders themselves, the type of personalities that it takes to actually get a business going and to be able to sustain it, they've got to be able to, you know, it's a long ride, you know, so mm-hmm. they've got to be able to be ready for that and the type of person that can dig in because it's not always going to be easy. So you've got to be able to grind through and make sure you you know, make those decisions when you need to. Yeah. And one of the things that really seems to, to get startups tripped up before they even get onto the, onto the runway is like conflicts in the founding teams. And that's, that's something that often if, if you are, you know, if you're, if you're a part of this process and you're kind of shepherding it along, it's something that seems like it would require a lot of intense uh, attention from, mm. from you or from, from the team, or, or at least just enough care to notice small things before they become big things. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you approach those early formations of founding teams and how to set them up for success? or just recognize issues before they arise? Uh, definitely. You know, it's people go into it, I, I guess, like any marriage. Um, you know, people go into it with best of intentions. They've all you know, got alignment um, on what they think. But, you know, people, very early people can diverge and diverge in what they think, you know, and because you're thinking this is what a business is and two people have different views, um, the worst ones I've seen are the ones that try and both fight you know, fight that battle and they end up imploding a business. And we've, we've had that happen, one of our investments. Um, mm. Unfortunately, the founding team, you know, all went their separate ways. They collapsed the business and these things happen. Um, other ones that, you know, even companies we've been involved in, sometimes the founders don't get along. Um, but, you know, if you've got professionals and you've got people that have the better interest of the business, because at the end of the day, you know, if the business is worth a lot, people start founding, shareholding. Um, mm-hmm. We have found probably the best thing is that shareholder document to begin with. You know, if you've got a, um, a shareholder agreement that states how you would amicably, I guess it's sort of like a prenup, um, how you would mm. make that situation work, I find that's the best thing. And, and you know, you, uh, you can all stay, you know, committed to the goal, even if people aren't as involved sometimes as, as they would normally be. Yeah, this, this makes me think of a, a common piece of, 
you know, wisdom for startup founders is to be thinking of your exit strategy, but there's really so many different exit strategies along the way. There's the exit from the business that's successful. Then there's also the exit from the business that's not successful, but there's also just all the different ways that one person might exit the business, or you might exit one particular form of the business and then continue with a pivot. And each of those is some, some form of being prepared for what might not go according to plan. And this seems to relate back to what you said, which is a lot of it is just telling people what not to do. And maybe yeah. not telling, but just showing them with your wisdom. Here's what has happened in the past when we did that. <laughs> here, here lay dragons. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to take your own advice too. You know, we, uh, yeah. we get in situations and, you know, you get emotional about things, but then you get a bit of time to sort of contemplate on what's important. And often what's important, especially if you've taken investment from people, is to look after their money. You know, you've, mm-hmm. you've taken a commitment to them. And just because, you know, two people aren't getting along doesn't mean that you completely throw it all in. You know, you've got to right. still commit to it. And, uh, much like, you know, any divorce, you know, if there's kids involved, you've got to uh, look after those kids. And that's that's how you should treat that company, I believe. Yeah. So th- this is this is another thing that's interesting to me that there's from from the perspective of the VC, you're not in it with the teams. They're in it like part of what they are in is the emotional uh, stuckness perhaps of being like, what is our, what are our investors going to say about this or that? And so there's a way that you're sort of outside of it and being outside, it's a lot easier to just be level-headed and see things clearly than when you're in it. And as I've done a lot of personal work and like learning, like investigating my own personal triggers and my own ego, it's, I've, I've learned that it's very easy to just intellectually understand what a healthy team looks like. And then when I'm in my team, I can just be just as in it as anybody and just as blind. And so I'm curious for you, what what's an example of a time that this has occurred for you where you find yourself not quite walking the walk and that like, I come to Jesus moment occurs and then you had to learn something new? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you one. Um, obviously, the, a business um, that we were exited from, that's probably a good one because rather than uh, dig any dirty laundry <laughs> on current ones. Mm. But, um, yeah, we had a business obviously based out of Australia. We had a um, young leadership team, all of our first time, you know, doing a startup. So we're all excited. Um, we took in a, a, a large investment um, and then we went and hired um, hired a COO that turned out to be almost put the business under, like it was sight unseen culturally. It was just mm. the wrong person, not what we, you know, not what was on the package. Um, I quickly found myself on the outer <laughs> very quickly with, um, cause I, I had a vision and my vision was aligned to the founders vision, you know, as you know, founders, what, what the business wanted, but, uh, new, new management or new blood had different ideas. Um, so we quickly, had to make choices, you know, and it almost put it under, you know, there was infighting, there was a lot of that stuff. Um, thankfully, everyone pulled together and focused on the, the core vision, you know, to, to get it going. But, um, you know, you it can turn very quickly and, you know, the pressure pack of a, a startup, especially when you've got VC, so you've got boards, you know, you've got foreign, you know, ent- you know people involved in the, the business, uh, it can implode really quickly, and you know when you're young, which we uh, we were, you know, and we were inexperienced. 
um, it was, yeah, it was to the brink, you know, <laughs> you're trying to bring it back. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we, we managed to get it together and I guess you'd say get a, get our stuff together well enough to, uh, to push forward. And then after that, it was, it was all up, which was good. Mm-hmm. So, uh, further along this line, given COVID, how, how do you take what you've learned about congealing that, that, uh, that core team and then apply that in a world where the core team actually can't even necessarily be in the same place together? Cause that, that's one thing that, yeah. that I, I've learned is like over, over the course of COVID our my core, my core management team has, we've had to kind of fight an uphill battle to maintain the personal connective side of the relationship versus just getting into a mode of, okay, here's our zoom calls and we're talking about business and then starting to slowly get off track on some of the emotional subtext. And how, how have you found, what, what are some, some of the tools that you found to, uh, to overcome that in this like chaotic form storm perform part of a early founding journey? De- definitely. We, um, yeah, look, we, we went through that last year. Um, obviously with, as I mentioned, you know, everything's sort of changing and a lot of our business, uh, sort of being affected, you know, revenue affected, you've got people, you've got to, you know, got to be accountable for in terms of making sure you're paying staff and etc. Um, I, I found the, the biggest thing issue was suddenly things went away, you know, Jim, um, my you know, co-founders are brown bell and jiu-jitsu so he loves mm. doing that that was taken away you know so mental the mental health aspect I think has been the most intriguing part for how people you know I, I didn't realize how much you rely on just being around people for the sake of it you know and when you're making decisions over over text or over zoom you know different things like you can still see people but you're not feeling people you know you're not feeling their how they really feel about things and becomes very flat emotionally. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of decisions get blown out of proportion or a lot of comments get blown out of proportion because people don't have that human aspect. Um, it probably made me, a, a, you know, appreciate more and more how important it is for a founding team to actually be able to sit in a room together and be able to talk about things because it became very transactional, you know, in conversations and, mm-hmm. You know, everyone loved Zoom, you know, for 12 months. Everyone was all excited about it. But having now gone back and being in London, we've, we're back in, you know, offices for the last three or four months. We've just gone gangbusters in the last four months, our business, because suddenly we can all feed off each other and emotionally and and um, mentally as well. So mm-hmm. it's, it certainly has changed. And I guess starting a business during that time really opened that, our eyes to that, you know, the challenges, but also the pluses of why you build a team to begin with. Yeah, it's an interesting interesting societal reorg in general to think of everybody going through the experiment of, you know, you start, you start with a thesis. The thesis for most businesses was it's best to be in an office together. And mm. remote is also great too. It's got its benefits. And then going to a world where remote is the only thing. <laughs> we have no other choice. And in that process, you start to discover what it was that you actually were missing about the in-person communication. And you also appreciate by noticing the relief in your body, what you actually didn't like about the the, per, the face-to-face stuff. You know, somebody's showing up every 15 minutes to knock on your door and distract you. And, yeah. you know, having 
having to commute and all these different things. So like coming, coming back into the office, what are, what are some of the things that you are just so grateful to have again? And what are the things that you didn't realize were actually detrimental to the process in the previous mode? And now you're working to address. Yeah, I, I guess from our from our perspective, like I've I've spent pretty much my whole career being a, a social person. You know, a lot of business was done socially. Um, it'd be you know after hours as well. You know, sort of just at, at the pub or you know going you know to events and and different things. Like having that taken away completely changed how I had to operate as a as a business person. Um, so I guess the the positive now is to be back there, you know, a lot of the conversations we're having are in person, you know, you can sort of engage people and you probably get, you know, 10 times more information from someone about what they really need or what they really think as opposed to what you would get on a Zoom call, you know, where it's locked mm. in for half an hour and you hang up and I, I don't, I'm not sure about yourself, but like I was, I was on seven, eight calls a day. I get to the end of it, I completely forget. Everyone just molded into one, and I'm sort of mm-hmm. like, I'm always remember this stuff. You know, I've got a iron class, iron cast memory. Um, didn't have it this time. You know, so a lot of the stuff yeah. was was leaking, and opportunities were weren't being you know followed through like they were. And having been back in the office now, suddenly, like you remember that conversation because you remember how you were talking to that person, what you were talking about, where you were, you know. It yeah, just, where you were standing in the room, it, all the exactly. yeah, sense and, memories. And, and that sort of is a trigger. So, um, yeah, it was an interesting human experiment, certainly. So um, yeah. I, I did like it, but I, I think the hybrid approach is probably the best thing now. You know, we're not, we're not going back to five days a week. I don't know any mm-hmm. of the companies that we're invested in or anything. Everyone's sort of got a hybrid approach. If you want to be in the office, great. If you want to be at home, great. But, you know, get a good mix going. Yeah. So uh, another thing that I'm curious about is having, you know, you've got 25 portfolio companies. Each of them have been on their journey, this this journey themselves. And you pay a lot of attention to to culture. I'm curious, how how has culture shifted and diverged across, you know, a data set of 25 companies? And are there a couple of different, like clusters or categories of culture shift that you've seen are some a little bit more successful than others. How, how are you experiencing that? If you're looking at your portfolio as a whole and seeing, seeing what, what culture is, how culture is changing across them. Yeah. Look, uh, I guess, you know, culture is dictated by what's, you know, what's around. So, you know, we're, we're not, our investments aren't all in one country. You know, we've got uh, a few Australian companies, we've got UK companies, we've got US, a couple of US companies. Um, I, I think culturally, because we're in the tech environment, you would think they're all the same. You know, they've all got similar things. There's there's the techies, there's, you know, the management, there's the salespeople that oversell everything, you know, those mm-hmm. type of typical things. But I don't think that's the case. Like the different stages, I think the culture comes through firstly by the leaders. So, you know, it is important to know the people running the company, how they're going to turn that company. And we've seen... You know, there can be a lot of excitement, a lot of, you know, hype around companies that maybe take a bit longer to take off. And then there's the nice quiet ones where you're just shocked that they just keep on growing and it just comes through just making good decisions. And a lot of that, if if the worst cultures are the ones that don't allow people to make mistakes, you know, you've got to, mm. especially as a startup, 
You've got to learn. You've got to be able to pivot quickly. You can't take it personally if you really love something and it's not working. You've just got to do what you, you've got a runway, you know, and everyone talks about runways. And if that runway runs out, it doesn't really matter how emotionally attached you were to a decision. You have to make the right decision in that moment. Right. It might be the wrong one later, but at that moment you might take all the inputs and do the right thing. And the leaders in those businesses are the people to make those right decisions. And occasionally it's the decision is that they're not the right people to run it. You know, maybe, you know, as much as they love it, maybe they need to step to the side. And we've seen a few instances of very big businesses where the CEO steps to the side for, you know, six years until it gets picked up and then they come back in, you know, when it's, when they're mm-hmm. ready for it. You know, these are the type of things that I guess mature founders will will make a decision to say, look, I'm not the right person for this. I love it. I'll support it. But we need someone who can do X, Y, and Z. Otherwise, we're not going to make that quantum leap to the next next stage. Mm-hmm. How frequently does that happen? Not frequent enough, I think, sometimes. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. just because you had a great idea um, doesn't necessarily mean that you're the right person to, to get it off the ground. You know, it's um, mm-hmm. I, I know myself, I'm not the person who's going to get in there in any business and, you know, do certain things because they're not my forte. And if I try and do it, I'm going to either mess it up or I'm going to do, you know, take too long and it's going to affect us. There's other things I do really well. And I guess you know, over a period of time, I've realized, okay, stick to your lane, you know, do what you, you're good at and pay, you know, pay someone or, you know, give equity to someone to come in and do the other stuff to make sure that you got the best in class at any stage. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to hear more of more of the journey that you've that you've experienced about how you discovered the staying in the lane and the I mean these are my words but like the 70% solution like one of the uh principles that we operate under is connection over perfection. Yeah. And if you're if you're in connection with what you're doing if you're connection with your customers and with your with your employees and with your vision and it's constantly iterating and you're hitting it with like a 70% solution but you're getting data and iterating on it then that's better than trying to build the thing that's 100%. Yeah. And yeah. just 10 degrees off and too far of a direction. And so this is this is something that you're speaking to where there's founders who start with a vision and then they find that they just aren't the ones that that need to be carrying it forward. And how do you help coach them into discovering that for themselves in a way that is, I guess, welcoming to the fears that their ego has? <laughs> Yeah, no, that's it. Well, you know, it's, it is tough because, you know, especially when people are passionate about something and, you know, it was their, you know, it was their business, you know, they started from the ground, they've gone and hired people around them, um, you know, and it's, it's not always just the founders. Sometimes it's the people in, you know, have been hired second or third, you know, into the business that, you know, they may have been awesome in one place, you know, they might have been the best in their, their class mm-hmm. there but put into a new environment, even with the same type of business, the, the cultural aspect and going back to that is the culture fit of people around them doesn't enable them to be successful as they were. So the way right. that the way that I would approach that is to, to be very clear that someone is a high achieving person. They're someone who's very motivated to do what, you know, do the right thing. But it comes back to that vision of what's important for that business and the shareholders and the people, you know, expecting to earn a living off this. And maybe it's taking one step to the left. You know, maybe it's not 
a CEO or it's not a CFO, maybe you step to the left and you get someone else in to do that bit and you maintain yourself. And often you see that turn into evangelist, you know, that's chief evangelist or something like that because no one's got more passion for that business than the founder. You know, I don't care who comes in. Mm. They're hired guns. They're hired to do a certain job. But that person who came up with that is always going to be the most passionate person and the one that if you're going for later stage investment, if that person's still there, that was their vision. You got them to here. You know, people are still going to want to hear from them because that was what was passionate about the first lot of investors, the angel investors, you know, the people who, who took a punt. They don't take a punt necessarily on an mm-hmm. idea. They take a punt on the person. So... But maybe that's, yeah, that doesn't necessarily turn you into, I guess you say, super CEO, you know, or, you know, senior manager. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that just highlights the, the, the difference between founder and CEO and why they are two separate titles that are often included together. Because if it could be a true success as a founder to have created a vision and then passed it off to somebody who's like, yes, this vision, I'm going to carry this forward. And then a team forms behind them and they do it. And then the founder is just like, great. I'm going to cheerlead you from the sidelines. And that doesn't necessarily mean a CEO building a big business. It's a completely different thing. And I think we just often have those things confused. That if I if I started this idea, it's my baby. And then how it goes reflects personally on me. Mm. And I'm somehow responsible for it. Uh, totally totally and and you know I'm, I'm from a sports background so you know basketball you had point guards you had you know centers you had people who had roles in the team but you know depending on the situation or the game you're in sometimes those roles had to change and you know you might have been the starter last week but this week you can't be the starter because you're completely mismatched and I, I take the same attitude with with you know business in you know, you've got to have your best team on and not necessarily the best players, um, just the best team, you know, and who's mm-hmm. going to gel, who's going to get the job done because, you know, the, the vision of winning, is, you know, that game is bigger than anyone's ego and, you know, right. you've got to change that and some of the best players in the world are, are not the best teammates, you know, and not the, the you know, going to suit a team. So, yeah, you've, you've got to take that forward sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So Nathan, as my final question for you today, what outside of COVID, because we've we've already covered a lot of the culture changes that occur with COVID, but what are across all of your companies are you noticing are some of the sort of macro cultural changes that are common as our times are shifting? What what kinds of cultures are employees demanding? What kinds of companies are clients and customers wanting to work with? What are people wanting to invest in? And what can you talk talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. I, I think one of the the big changes is that um, you know companies when you know when everyone sensationalized companies like Google, you know they've been so successful, and everyone was like, well, we need ping pong tables, we need you know pool tables, I need free food and lunches and stuff. Um, our, in our company, with True Altitude, we've got a lot of twenty somethings. You know, they're they're coming through. Um, they're super talented super motivated they they know more than you know any of us did you know when we were their age um they're all motivated by different things and they're very much motivated by um by achievement um not necessarily just you know 
pay packets and stuff, they're more motivated about what they can achieve and who they can be and they're thinking, you know, what they're going to be in 10 to 20 years. You know, when I was probably 20, I was more worried about what was going to happen in the next month than I was in, you know, in 20 years' time. Hmm. And I think, you know, certainly from business perspective, you've got to cater towards that. You've got, you know, because the, the life cycles aren't a 20-year job anymore. <laughs> you know, you'd be lucky right. to be in jobs for three to five years. So how are you going to motivate these people to be there for three to five years? And you're a startup, which means you can't pay them big pay packets. So what are you going to do? So often that comes through equity, comes through opportunity. But um, what we've found also is what's their next step or how are they going to create their business? So mm-hmm. you've got to take the the focus of not trying to keep people there for 10 years, you've got to think, how can I make them be the next founders? You know, and yeah. I think founders these days have to take that approach of succession. You know, what's what's the next thing? What, what are they going to be successful? Because this business might be sold in three to five years. Um, they don't necessarily go with it, <laughs> you know, so they've got to be thinking that. And you're, you know, I'm, I'm thinking now that, in five years' time, I might need them, <laughs> you know. So, you know, it's yeah. um, <laughs> for the next opportunity. So, I, I think we're we're very much about that, and I think businesses should be about cultural, uh, like a cultural shift towards how can we build the next team of or next army of of entrepreneurs, um, you know, founders, um, you know, thinkers, because there's a lot of info now. People can you know, get in it, but what they don't have is the experience now. So if we can give them experience, they're going to give us plenty of, uh, plenty of motivation to, you know, to be chasing things. It's, it's a really interesting thing where we have this thing, this thing where a business is like a, an employee's time horizon is shortening and shortening. And like, you might be at a company for a couple of years. The average, I think in tech is something like two and a half years now to stay with a yeah. company. And then at the same time, you're describing the younger people, the younger generation is thinking on longer and longer time horizons. And I think I, I experienced that myself as having, you know, I had a father who had a job for like 20 or 30 years at the same company and yeah. just saw things deteriorating and just wasn't working out as well as mm. the plan. I, I went through the same thing. Oh, honestly, my mm-hmm. dad was the same, you know, and I can't, you know, I can't imagine that now, like being in doing something for 10 years. I, I would, yeah, I couldn't even right. imagine. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and I think the, the previous the previous thought that this was going to have you like set up, the company would take care of you gone. So now people are thinking 10 or 20 years ahead of now, whatever technology I'm going to be working on doesn't exist yet yeah. because none of it does because everything I'm working on now is going to be outdated in five years. And so it's more about a path. So anybody who's coming through your company is they're looking at their long time horizon. You're looking at the company's time horizon with this expectation that each employee might be a very short time horizon. And then how do you make an entity that maintains stability and trajectory while being that node in this network? It's a different different scenario, you know, and um, I think every single one of our employees is working on a business or a business idea and, you know, in crypto, um, fashion, um, one's got their Mm -hmm. own venture capital funds, you know, mini venture capital fund, which they're, they're doing sort of small investments in the businesses that are ones that we wouldn't touch. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to help them, you know, and teach them and 
get them exposure yeah. to stuff. Um, it's it's exciting, um, you know, and how much they just they they're happy to do that. Like it would have terrified me at you know twenty something to, to do that, but these these um, guys right. and girls, no problem. You know, they're happy yeah. to get in there and and have a crack. So it's, it's like every tech company is also an incubator and a stepping stone, and you know, like. And, and as you were saying earlier, you might need them later on, you know, like, yeah, like things we, cha- change so quickly that they might be your next investor. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, that's, uh, you know, if these businesses take off, suddenly they got the money and we've, you know, we're talking to them about, you know, helping a, another business. Um, yeah. That's, that's a very plausible, you know, um, scenario that's, uh, that may happen in the near future. So um, we hope so, you know, that'd be amazing. Yeah. For us, you know, it's the achievement. Like we've we've seen that what's come out of our previous business is most of the people we worked with or worked for us have ended up in major senior positions in tech um, platform business, e-commerce businesses. You know, that's that's awesome for us. You know, that means we did something right, I guess. Yeah, fascinating. Well, thank you, Nathan. This has been a lot to think about, and I really, really enjoyed this conversation. And I wish you and everyone else at True Altitude all the best. Excellent. Thank you for your time and uh, really appreciate it.